0: Hello, listeners. Yamina here. Welcome to the Dr. GPCR podcast. Before we dive into this episode, we have a few announcements to make. We'd like to, first of all, take a moment and thank our Dr. GPCR ecosystem partners, namely Domir Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, Montana Molecular, and Orion Biotechnology. We hope you were able to join us at the Dr. GPCR Symposium on GPCR Activation and Signaling. If you have not, you can go back and watch the recorded talks with your premium membership. Also, mark your calendars for the upcoming symposia on July 21st on structural and molecular insights into GPCR activation. If you'd like to be considered as a speaker or have a speaker suggestion, please email us at hello at drgpcr.com. For more information and an updated schedule on all our activities, the easiest way is for you to go and use the links in the footer. And now let's dive into this episode. Hello everyone, this is Yamina from doctor GPCR, and Today I'm excited to have with me Paul Gasser. Paul, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: I'm so excited to talk to you. So why don't we start at the beginning and can you please introduce yourself to the audience?
1: Sure, Um, my name is Paul Gasser. I'm an associate professor in the Department of Biomedical Sciences at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I let's see. I did my my PhD at Arizona State University in neuroendocrinology, um, and a postdoc at the University of Bristol in the UK, um, also in in neuroendocrinology, looking at uh, cellular mechanisms of monoamine glucocorticoid interactions in the brain.
0: Amazing! And where did you do your undergrad before that?
1: That was at the University of Wyoming. Um, That was in zoology and physiology. And I actually did a master's after that in the same department.
0: Wow. There's it's interesting because here in the U.S. um, doing a master's is not mandatory to go get into a Ph.D. program. So there are very few people who actually go through the master before going into a Ph.D. program. So zoology, I think you're our first zoology uh, (laughs) graduate. So tell us a little little bit
1: more about that sure um yeah i actually had probably i think i had four majors in college um i've always been a a biology person i loved loved biology loved animals um and kind of um i guess you could say uh, i really got captivated by by cells just when i first saw living cells under a microscope just um, just a sense of awe kind of kind of hit me Um, so I was really excited about, you know, being able to, to think about what was going on in cells. So I just kind of wanted to dive in. I got to college and as you know, you know, your first class is general biology, which to me, um, was a little bit of a repeat and it was a little bit of, um, just this kind of rote stuff that felt to me like it was, the mystery wasn't really there, um, So I changed to English um, and didn't last in English very long, maybe a a month or two. When I realized I'd be writing papers all the time, Uh, switched to wildlife biology and then um, needed to get back to kind of cell biology. So I switched to the zoology and physiology department.
0: Wow. And and now you ended up as a professor writing papers.
1: (laughs) Yes, writing all the time. I didn't really, (laughs) no one told me that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> How cool is that? And as as a child or as a teenager, did you always know that it was biology? You mentioned seeing cells under a microscope for the first time and knowing, wow, you know, thinking to yourself, this is fascinating. When was that?
1: Uh, I'd say that was early, like probably junior high, high school age. Um, um, yeah, it was the first time I saw that. Uh, I had a, an excellent biology teacher in high school who you know kind of took people aside who who were interested in this kind of stuff and would take us to a the local college and and take us into a lab and we did some kind of rudimentary cloning stuff and mm-hmm. yeah just really captured my interest.
0: Wow that's <clears> phenomenal. <throat> um you mentioned doing a master's at the same university where you did your undergrad. What was your master thesis about?
1: It was um it, so When I got close to being finished with my undergraduate degree, I I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went to the the office of our department chair, who was the professor who taught me comparative chordate anatomy. And he was one of my favorite professors. So I just told him, I don't know what I want to do. I really like science. Um, I might want to go get a Ph.D., but I don't know. And he said, well, why don't you just do your last semester working in my lab? Um, and see if you like it. And he studied the pineal organ in the rainbow trout, which is the melatonin producing organ in in the in the, our brains and the brains of all vertebrates. And he was looking at so the the pineal gland in in lower vertebrates, I guess, so to speak, is directly photosensitive. So unlike ours, it can respond to light and light turns off melatonin production immediately and it and darkness increases it and so he was looking at the signaling mechanisms underlying that sensitivity to light so he told me about rhodopsin he told me about you know and I just clicked that this is the interface between the world and the cell and I just got very excited about it so I joined his lab and when he said uh, I could continue in a master's program Um, I jumped at the chance, partly because I still had this kind of dual interest. I was very pulled towards animal behavior. So when I was thinking about graduate programs, I was looking at going to Michigan and studying wolves in the wild. Um, Or I really loved cell biology. And so I I was pulled in these two different directions. Um, So doing the master's was kind of a good Good thing to kind of tide me over, um, really got me interested in the cell signaling stuff. And then I think after that, neuroscience really just made sense because it spans the cell biological and the behavioral.
0: Cool. So. Well, and you mentioned rhodopsin and, and melatonin. Was this the first time you heard about GPCRs or was this a, you know, just a, a topic that you kind of worked on and then...
1: So that was... That was really his class, even though it was comparative anatomy, um, he did teach a lecture on on development. So he had to kind of give us a taste of, you know, at that time, GPCRs were really this. So I graduated in 1991 from college and, um, you know, this was pretty early days in GPCR stuff. So it was, it was exciting stuff. And he went through the entire rhodopsin signaling cascade as an example of G protein coupled receptors. And again, just that, that idea of this is how things that happen in the world change what happens inside individual cells and in, in organisms. Uh, so, yeah, that was my first GPCR really experience, I guess. And then I got to study it in the pinealocytes.
0: And then I guess that motivated you to go ahead and, and do a PhD um, later on.
1: Yes. Yes. Uh, after the master's, again, I hadn't decided entirely between behavior and, and cell biology. So I took a job teaching at a community college for a year. <laughs> thought, take a year off and teach. Um, it wasn't a year off. It was 15 credits per semester. Um classes that maybe I had taken, but maybe I hadn't taken. So nonstop kind of work. And then uh, then I worked at Los Alamos National Lab for a couple of years in a cancer research lab before I joined my PhD lab.
0: What made you come back to to complete to start and complete a PhD after being on the on the market basically and, and working?
1: Yeah, uh I never I really never doubted that I wanted to do a PhD. I always wanted to do it, but I wanted to go to the right place. I wanted to be studying what I wanted to be studying. And that year of teaching at community college, I barely could have time to sleep. So I really didn't have time to think about where I wanted to go. And so it wasn't until I was working, um, that I had time to kind of think about it and do research on it, so, but I, I never doubted that I would go back.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you pick your PhD lab? The reason I'm asking this because is because a lot of our uh, a lot of people in the audience or the the listeners are either you know master master students, PhD students, and also postdocs. And I think hearing about other people's stories as to how they went about picking their next. Training opportunity is kind of important and informative as well to them. So uh, I'll let yeah. you uh, answer that.
1: Um, <clears throat> I applied to programs a lot of, at the time, uh, mostly zoology programs because I wanted that organismal kind of yeah. bent towards the research, but I really wanted cellular mechanistic stuff. So I think that that um, really kind of biased me towards neuroscience programs. Uh, and the lab that I ended up choosing was a lab that was looking at steroid hormone uh, action. So specifically looking at glucocorticoid um, mechanisms of rapid glucocorticoid action. So non-genomic uh, actions of steroids. So this is the, the idea that although we know that most the kind of a canonical G pro, or canonical steroid receptor signaling pathways, intracellular receptors, and long-term delayed effects, uh, there's always been known that there are rapid effects of, of steroid hormones. And this was back in the early 90s. Um, and the, uh, the professor whose lab I joined was Miles Urchinik, who had been one of the first to identify a membrane-associated glucocorticoid receptor. And he was then kind of Embarking on the process of trying to identify the signaling mechanisms downstream of that receptor, um, so it was a receptor that was very closely linked to a behavior, um, and so I was able to kind of span the the range of my interest, the behavioral stuff, but looking at cellular mechanisms.
0: What was the animal model that were was used during your PhD?
1: It was um, salamanders. So his. Wow. Yeah, so the behavioral model was uh, originally was in an animal called the rough newt, which is a kind of a Pacific Northwest um, amphibian, and they have this very robust uh, reproductive reflex, which is the male's clasp females, mm-hmm. um, and it's there's a brainstem circuit that's been worked out that mediates this clasp, and what had been discovered over the years was that stressing the animals or injecting them with with uh, corticosterone, which is the major glucocorticoid in these organisms, very rapidly shut down that clasping reflex. And it was over the years basically determined that through pharmacological data that it was a membrane associated receptor and not the intracellular receptor that was mediating this effect.
0: How cool is this? And you still maintain that zoology storyline in in your career
1: yeah yeah now he had moved to a different amphibian at the time and the the behavior wasn't as tightly as well understood but the receptor was was still there so we were able to start looking for signaling and and, in the process of really trying to purify and then clone that receptor what I'll tell you is it still hasn't been done wow yeah so there are there are Pluses and minuses to to this kind of story. I guess you'd say that it, it was a difficult thing to study. We could study some signaling stuff, but we couldn't really ever, and no one still has purified or isolated that receptor.
0: Why do you think that is?
1: I I, I think one of the difficulties is that it's a it's a a membrane associated steroid receptor, and so you have these lipophilic molecules that stick to a lot of things um, and they're in the membrane as well and so it's not as robust I guess an interaction maybe that that it's easy to do something like kind of a pull down or something like that with a ligand Um, it's a good question I spent a lot of time on it and (laughs) (laughs) um, yeah it
0: So after your PhD, you moved from Arizona to the UK to Bristol. Tell us a little bit more about the decision to go to do a postdoc and also how did you pick your next adventure?
1: Yeah, um, so that was during my PhD, I started kind of make connections with uh, Dr. Christopher Lowry, who was over in, in the UK at the time, but he was an American. He'd done his PhD at Oregon State University. And he's a serotonin uh, behavior person. Um, And we started talking uh, about another mechanism for glucocorticoid actions, uh, which was this transporter called Organic Cation Transporter 3. And so we were interested, he had done some work with my PhD advisor uh, years ago, looking at the effects of stress and glucocorticoids on monoamine levels in particular parts of the brain. And they had shown that that stress or glucocorticoids could rapidly increase concentrations of serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine in the hypothalamus. And one of the mechanisms that we were thinking about as far as what could be driving that is this transporter, OCT3, which is a multi-specific cation transporter that can handle serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, and histamine—all of the major monoamines. So we thought that maybe glucocorticoids were blocking the uptake mediated by this transporter, and that was what was causing elevations in, in monoamines. So um, I did actually do some of some work on that during my PhD, and then we wrote a grant together to to do a postdoc uh, with NSF, and I got that fellowship and and went over to
0: Bristol my natural question to the of uh, of the around this how was it adapting to a new environment uh you went from Wyoming to Arizona and then to to the UK I want to say Europe but the UK they're they're a special in a special Mm -hmm. spot uh in Europe what was it like for you there
1: um it was surprisingly different. I thought, you know, how different can it be? But um, that was pretty naive. It's a, it's a very different culture. Um, we loved it. We loved it there. Uh, so, but it did take some getting used to. It's a it's an old everything's old there. It's you know our stuff that's old in the U.S. is is pretty new to them. Uh, so beautiful, beautiful stuff. The countryside was amazing, um, and. We had a young daughter at the time, so she was about uh, three when we moved to Bristol. Um, she, they start school earlier there, so while we were there, she started school. Uh, so we really kind of got immersed in the culture there, um, and you know, just loved it. It's a, it's a, it's a country where even in a big city, if you live in the right place close to work, you can walk most places. Um, you really get familiar with the city in a way that you don't in a city like Phoenix where Arizona State is you're just driving all the time so you're not even though we were there for a long time you just don't really connect as much to a city so the adjustment um, was was easy in the sense that there were great people from all over the place working in this this research institute so it was a a welcome funded uh, lab that was focused on neuroscience and endocrinology there were people from other there were other people from the states there were australians there were germans there were dutch you know people from all over the world um, all of whom were adjusting so i think it was that made it easy um, the environment was great they had lots of social activities there um, the head of the institute stafford lightman was you know, a very social person so uh, that made it that made it really easy as well
0: i love that you know you mentioned driving in arizona and i'm i'm i was born in europe i lived in canada and then i moved to the us and every time i go back to europe i love it you know it's it's a different world it's the old world and anything that's old in north north america is definitely not old compared to whatever is in in, in europe But I'm always fascinated by the size of things, even the streets, the roads, even the um, washing machines are tinier. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: Yeah. we had a tiny little refrigerator, nobody had big ones, nobody had clothes dryers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even in damp England, there were no clothes dryers, (laughs) you just hung the stuff out. yeah.
0: It has its charm, definitely, but I think it's... You know, um, it, I, I really like Europe, and I think it's a different world, and I would find it difficult now, especially now living in the Boston area, where you, you do have the opportunity to, you know, take public transportation or walk. Uh, it's different to, for example, Arizona, that like you mentioned, or California even, depending on, on where you live, but yeah. it's a great experience to just go out there and and explore.
1: Yeah, yeah. We missed it. <clears throat> we miss it a lot, and We were there only for two years because Mm -hmm. while we were there, my advisor was recruited back to the States to go to the University of Colorado. So we had to either go with him or go somewhere else. And so we were planning to go, go to Boulder. um, And that's when a a friend of mine called from Marquette and said, we have an opening and we'd like you to apply for it. So while we were packing our things for the States, I flew over and interviewed in Milwaukee and got the job and we redirected our stuff to to Wisconsin.
0: Wow. That's and the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> Did you always know that you wanted to be a professor?
1: I think so. Yeah. I mean, I guess what I the way I describe it is there wasn't when I found out that I could just keep going to school, i.e., what the heck graduate school was. Um I thought, yeah, I'm kind of in. I, <laughs> I, uh, I just like learning. So, uh, you know, eventually, you you get to the point where you, you know, you're done being a student, but uh, it's always an environment that I I really loved. So, whether I knew it or not, I think this was what I was ended up what I was kind of destined to be.
0: Yeah, and I think I think that your experience at the community college teaching. Give you experience that you could take with you, and develop, and and then yeah. use it. Now that you're you're a, a professor,
1: right? When you when you jump in at a community college, if it's a full time position, you know I thought I'll take a year off and teach. It's not a year off. It's it's teaching. Um, it's not. Yeah. It's it's nonstop relearning the stuff, learning it for the first time the day before you teach it. I wow. had lots and lots of anxiety dreams. I, um, But at the, in the end, even though it was very hard, I found out that I really liked it. So. That's
0: phenomenal. And then um, you come back to the U.S., you start your own lab. Um, how did you decide what you wanted to work on in your
1: own lab? I continued to work on this transporter, OCT3, because there was really, there were only A handful of labs in the world studying this transporter. Um, It was thought of as as a peripheral transporter, only really relevant in cardiovascular tissues. That's where it was first studied. Um, So identifying a monoamine transporter in the brain, so that's what we did was during my postdoc, we did a full distribution of this OCT3 from front to back in the rat brain, showing that it was widely expressed in the brain. And it as a high capacity transporter for all of the monoamines that is directly inhibited by the major stress hormone, glucocorticoid hormone. Um, it was obviously a mechanism that by which stress could regulate many different kinds of behaviors. So that was my original kind of research focus was continuing to characterize this transporter where it is, and within cells, kind of at a, an ultrastructural level, where where is this transporter? Because understanding where that transporter is in relation to the other transporters uh, and in relation to receptors is kind of critical for understanding how it regulates monoaminergic transmission. So that was my mission kind of at the beginning. And and really with the goal of understanding the position of the transporter with respect to receptors. And then how does blockade of that transporter alter the activation of local monoamine receptors? So that's what I started out with when I got to Marquette. There are many people here who study um, addiction, largely many of them cocaine addiction. And so we started out knowing that there was an in, kind of an interaction between stress and relapse in cocaine addiction, um, my kind of original hypothesis was possibly the, the one of the ways that stress increases the risk for relapse is that it blocks uptake of dopamine in particular areas of the brain by blocking this transporter. So we set out to, to write some grants around that um, and start, start looking at it. Um, and we were funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse to, to explore that hypothesis. And so that's the connection back into GPCRs is starting to look at the interactions between monoamines and this transporter.
0: That was going to be exactly my question is how do GPCRs fit into this whole, uh, into the story and and the story of the transporters?
1: Yeah, yeah. So so a lot of the work I did was microscopy, just immunofluorescence, looking at particular parts of the brain, um, what kinds of cells express the transporter. Um, and then what, uh, what receptors are expressed in those parts of the brain as well. And so we obviously did a lot of work on dopamine. That's not what I'm studying right now. But um, we essentially, over the years, demonstrated that blockade of this transporter by stress through glucocorticoids potentiates the effects of low doses of cocaine on extracellular dopamine concentrations and therefore potentiates the ability of that low sub-threshold dose of cocaine to cause relapse in a rodent model of addiction. Um, In the the meantime, we were continuing to do the basic studies of where the transporter was. And and the work that I'm doing now is focused on adrenergic receptors, um, partly because norepinephrine is, is the best substrate for this transporter OCT. But when I was looking at identifying what receptors are proximal to the transporter, I just started getting antibodies to GPCRs, monoamine GPCRs. And one of the earliest double immunos I did was with an antibody to the beta-1 adrenergic receptor and OCT3 to see if there was an overlap. And one of the areas in the brain where OCT3 lights up is an area called the retrosplenial cortex. And there are these little cells that light up really high with with OCT3. So I always go to that part of the brain to make sure my antibody was working. And I, so I went there and then I switched to the channel that had the green immunofluorescence, which was for the beta one receptor and right on top of the OCT3 was the beta one. And it was on the nucleus of the cell and I thought, well, this antibody is bad. Like they say about many GPCR antibodies, there's no beta-1 receptors in the nucleus. Um, But it is kind of cool that they overlay perfectly the OCT3 and the beta-1s. And I kind of filed that back in my brain for many, many years. Um, In the meantime, working on the dopamine story. And then I was at a graduate students committee meeting. I was on his committee, but I wasn't his supervisor. And he, made, he was studying PACA signaling, I think. Yeah. And he made this comment that someone had shown that beta adrenergic receptors could be localized to the nucleus. Well, we knew that OCT3 was densely, densely expressed in the nucleus. And I couldn't figure out why. Right. When he said that, I don't think I heard anything else in that meeting because I thought, well, this is why this transporter is in the nuclear membrane. It's... It's allowing the access of a ligand to this receptor, just sitting there at, at the nuclear membrane. So we jumped into that story, and that's what we're studying now: is a population of beta one receptors at the nucleus.
0: How um, cool is that? I yeah, think it's really
1: yeah. cool. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and we published just last year um, a paper demonstrating that this. The beta 1 receptor is localized to the inner nuclear membrane in astrocytes and other cells, but in all astrocytes, and we can culture the astrocytes. Um, And that OCT3 is localized to the outer nuclear membrane and also to the plasma membrane. That norepinephrine accesses, enters the cell, accesses the nuclear receptor, and causes rapid increases in pKa activity in the nucleus. And if you block uptake, you block that rapid response
0: of, uh, in the nucleus. So. I think that's really cool because it it puts into into well it not it, it adds another dimension of of GPCR to GPCR signaling.
1: Yeah, yeah. you
0: know traditionally you think of the receptor at the cell at the plasma membrane and then ligands come in and you know they there's a concentration there's an activation and then that whatever happens intracellularly happens. But since the discovery of the fact that GPCRs can be expressed at the, on the nuclear membrane and other, in other compartments and fu- signaling other compartments, I think um, we don't know enough about these mechanisms and we don't yeah. know enough about how do these GPCRs actually function in these compartments. And I think this is a really cool story.
1: Yeah, it's the most fun I've ever had. And so that work, that the paper that the student was citing was Bruce Allen's group, Terry Hubert. Yeah. You know, they published a cluster of papers in the early 2000s. And yeah. Uh, yeah, so that was that was the kind of aha moment, right? When he said that, the 15 or 10 years of thinking about why this transporter was in the nucleus suddenly clicked. I knew it had to be. And every time we did an experiment, sure enough, There it was, Um, but it does, it it opens up. I mean, I think the idea from the start, it's been a little confusing how, if all the receptors are at the plasma membrane, let's say all GS coupled receptors, then how do you get unique responses to different ligands from receptors at the plasma membrane? How does a signal get to the nucleus from one GPCR, but not from another GPCR? How do different genes get turned on, et cetera? And I think this idea, you know, it's been evolving from microdomains within the nucleus or within the plasma membrane to endosomal receptors, Golgi receptors, nuclear receptors. And I think, well, and, and even, you know, there's people doing amazing work on identifying the distance from the receptor to which pKa can even be activated and how far can cyclic AMP diffuse. Uh, and it seems to stick pretty close to the receptor uh, in most cases. Yeah. So that these intracellular good. receptors are probably very widespread.
0: Yes, we just don't yet have the tools. We haven't looked,
1: yeah. It's well, funny. that antibody worked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And it's funny because my PhD, I was looking for steroid receptors where they're not supposed to be in the plasma membrane. And now it's a complete 360. I'm looking for GP, I'm looking at GPCRs where they're quote unquote not supposed to be in, in the nucleus. I think it just shows the mystery is always there, you know. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, we have we have work cut out for a lot of trainees and a lot of PhD students and postdocs yeah. for a couple of decades, definitely. Yeah. yeah. You mentioned um, not uh, trusting that antibody, and you've talked a little bit about tools. Um, what do you think? Are we what kind of tools would be really great to have to try and answer some of these questions?
1: Yeah, um, I think it it's a real problem. The antibody. Um, situation: These are these are expensive reagents, yeah. um, and in many cases, the companies that sell them don't do due diligence to validate. Um, you know, there's a bare minimum that you can do, which is not enough. And and when you when you publish with these antibodies, the publishers know, the reviewers know, controls are very necessary because you have to be sure you're you're labeling what you're labeling. Um, so it's a problem, and I think people are working on it, but um it's a they're beautiful tools when they work, but I think we know that sometimes if the antibody or if the receptor is phosphorylated, it doesn't react interact with the antibody the same way. Uh, so <clears throat> what we did was we used two separate antibodies to the same protein that bind to two different parts of the protein. Um, We use the flag tag receptor that we expressed exogenously to try to get around the potential confounds of of the antibodies. But I think uh, high affinity specific ligands that are tagged um, can be useful. Um, uh, it's, It's a difficult thing. Um, yeah, these nanobodies I think in some ways can be more engineered to be more specific and possibly in combination with some kind of super resolution kind of microscopy you could get some useful really good information about them um, I think really being aware of the limits of the tools that we have is really important uh, and that there is a lot out there and we found this Um, a lot of stuff is published and not necessarily validated that well and once it's published it's in the literature right and then it's taken as gospel
0: yeah well that's true i think you made a great point around validating these antibodies in general and i i do understand the the you know the need to validate then again when you're a company you have you don't really. I'm not gonna say you don't care about your product, but you you have other many many other products that you want to put out there, so you don't necessarily yeah. have the capacity to go dig exactly. deeper,
1: right?
0: And validates those, but um, I think when you think about looking at receptor localization and interaction of different proteins beyond the plasma membrane, immun you know, imaging and immunofluorescence is the way to go. Microscopy is the way to go. When when we started the conversation, I was thinking, oh, it would be really cool to, to do some biophysical studies. But how do you it's hard if you cannot visualize it.
1: Right. Right. Um, I mean, I do think that the the existence of these receptors and in, in now at least two different pools raises some very interesting questions because. The nuclear membrane is very uh, almost cholesterol free. So, and we know that cholesterol really influences the functions of these receptors, especially at least for the beta receptors, there's some pretty good evidence. And so models of maybe liposome kind of models where you have cholesterol rich and cholesterol poor models, you can look at the biophysics of the receptor in those different environments and look at the function in those different environments. You can start to make predictions about how that nuclear receptor will be different in function from the
0: plasma membrane receptor, which, which gets me to my next question. And I don't think we have an answer for that is how come these receptors or is there a signal or is there a moment in time when these receptors are being synthesized that says, okay, you go to the plasma membrane and you guys go to the, to, to this compartment, to the nucleus.
1: Exactly. Um, it's, we thought, I mean, I naively thought, oh, of course, I'll just look in the literature. What's the signal for getting something to the internuclear membrane? It's not. Not really well known. Um, there's some ideas. There's some really good good data out there, but it's there's no one mechanism. The beta receptors are a single exon, so there's not an alternative splicing. There may be a post-translational modification of some kind. Um, So we're actually doing some experiments trying to identify sites of phosphorylation or glycosylation that might be different between the two pools of receptors um, to see if we can find out what the mechanism of localization is. If you could do that, then you could generate maybe an animal that has receptors that are only nuclear or only plasma membrane, and you could start to really ask, what is the, the specific function of this nuclear receptor? Out of all of the things that we know that norepinephrine does in the brain, no one has ever thought, well, what if it's acting directly at the nucleus? We know it acts on gene expression. We know it's anti inflammatory. We know it regulates, ne- it's critical in protecting neurons, and it, it's, there are deficits in neurodegenerative disorders. We know that it regulates gene expression, but no one's ever looked at which of these two receptors are doing that. It could be that the nuclear receptors are doing the bulk of the genomic work, whereas the plasma membrane receptors are doing the rapid kinds of physiological adjustments in response to more of the effort.
0: Agreed, agreed. And I think this is really <clears> cool <throat> because that was gonna be my next question. What do you think these two populations might be, might be doing differently?
1: Yeah. Well, we've we've got, we're actually putting together a paper right now, um, collecting the last bits of data, but we've identified a gene that uh, has been known to be triggered, you know, kind of induced by norepinephrine for a long time. Uh, and we've, we've, the paper will basically describe experiments demonstrating that for this gene, it's the nuclear receptor that's turning it on. Wow. So the plasma membrane receptors do nothing to turn this gene on so it's a it's a beautiful model to start doing this studies on what is location bias mm-hmm. there are obviously things that the plasma membrane receptors are doing and there's this one thing that at least this one thing we know that the nuclear receptor is doing um what is what are the groups of genes that are regulated by the nuclear receptor are there genes that are regulated by the plasma membrane receptor are there structural assemblies of genes that localize to receptor microdomains or things like that and yeah. in the nucleus?
0: Yeah, it also makes me wonder if there is any, you know, protein that might interact with the receptor that yeah. direct its transport either to the plasma membrane versus the nucleus.
1: Right, right. Yeah, because it is an it is. In some ways, an active process. In some ways, a diffusion-mediated process with a tag system. But mm-hmm. yeah, because there's there's no one way to get to the inner nuclear membrane. Um, yeah. yeah, we don't yet know.
0: Well, can't wait to see yeah uh, <laughs> the paper and then who knows? Give it a couple of years and maybe we'll have some hint. To I an think answer. it's
1: tractable. Yeah, I think. I mean, obviously, we now we know that that they're there in both compartments, that the bulk of them are in the nucleus. But it's another thing that we're, we're identifying is that there's this beta one, beta two, beta three, all of which are coupled to GS, mm-hmm. but they do different things. Sometimes they're expressed in the same cells. Um, what we're showing is that beta two does not appear to be nuclear and beta one does. Um, and so this may be how beta-1 and beta-2 do different things yeah. in some cells.
0: A lot of the, these always blew, these these questions always blew my mind because we've been, well, in the lab, when you're working, you're typically working on one GPCR, one receptor, one pathway, and there's enough work to go around on that one. But yeah. when you put it into a more physiological context, it's not expressed on its own. Right. It's expressed with other GPCRs. And here I'm thinking about the chemokine receptor family where there is this you know the the one gpcr can one receptor can bind to multiple chemokines and multiple chemokines can bind to different gpcrs different receptors and then it always makes you wonder how do these receptors know what to do and when and in response to which which chemokine or which stimulus yeah
1: yeah, yeah. so now you have the idea that the integrated cellular response to a stimulus like norepinephrine is another layer of complexity where you have, which I think makes sense, right? We know that the responses, even to a single ligand of a cell, can be different over development, can be different from moment to moment, and and involve regulation of membrane, cytosolic, and nuclear processes. And so being able to more in a more focused way, regulate specific parts of what's going on in the nucleus makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And we haven't even talked about dimers and, and multimers.
1: Right. Right. <laughs> it's, right.
0: Let's not get into that. Exactly, just yet. exactly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Sorry,
0: so I always ask this, and since you're, you're working on a transporter, I'm still going to ask the question, what is your favorite GPCR? And it can be the transporter it doesn't have to be a GPCR. We've had phosphorylation favorite phosphorylation sites. We've <laughs> had uh adenosine as a favorite molecule. And I think he was uh, I think if the I can't remember which GPCR dopamine D1 as the GPCR. We've also had uh, G proteins, you name it. What what's your answer to the typical question that we, we always ask? Um
1: I mean, I would say it's the beta one receptor right now. It's I mean, we've known this, this thing has been studied so much. We know so much about it and we still know so little about it. So yeah. it's a beautiful situation where you have all the work of so many people to draw upon the phosphorylation sites, the, the modification sites, the, the polymorphisms, all of those kinds of things, the signaling, right? the The idea that you can have G, G protein switching in some of these beta receptors, and and so because the transporter, I mean, that was where we, that's why we found the nuclear receptor. Uh, but the, the the receptor is is by far my favorite. This has been it's such a kind of a I guess for me kind of a universe opening kind of thing that. Mm-hmm finding out about the research on nuclear receptors and being able to now, because we've identified it in a very homogeneous cell population that we can culture where every single cell has this receptor, we can just take advantage of that that body of work and start dissecting and, and understanding fundamental questions like how does it get to the nucleus and what does it do to the genome and how does it do that? and then how does it relate to the actions of norepinephrine both in normal responses to stress and arousal and then possibly pathological stuff mm-hmm.
0: yeah and plus i the think these are these are very well studied receptors i think the adrenergic system is really well studied so there's a lot of tool compounds
1: yeah yeah
0: that allow to study it how hard is it to get for example labeled tool compounds to study beta 1
1: Uh, you can buy quite a few different agonists and antagonists, mostly antagonists that have been labeled. Um, we've tried some of that Mm -hmm. just to confirm the nuclear kind of localization, but at least at the time we were doing it, a lot of the, the tags were pretty weak fluorophores. So it, it wasn't really possible to get good signal. Um, plus when you're talking of in a living tissue and you put a ligand on it, you have living processes that happen yeah. yeah. capturing things at the right moment is, is difficult. So yeah. um the 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 tools are useful. That the kind of one of the ways we use to dissect intracellular and cell surface receptors is using antagonists that are differentially cell permeant. And because the adrenergic drugs are so many of them. You can find antagonists that, that would be able to get into the cell and block an intracellular receptor and couple them with antagonists that can't get into the cell and therefore only block the cell surface receptor.
0: Which is really cool. So, then, and yeah. then again, you have to take into account, as you mentioned, the ligand being able to being cell permeable. And if we're talking about small molecules, then there's a solvent issue as well, because sometimes exactly. these are not water-soluble, they're in DMSO yeah. or or any other you know, uh, compound. Ethanol, is, or,
1: yeah.
0: Yeah, which is not, cells won't like being in right. ethanol for too long.
1: Right, right. <laughs> yeah, all. so, yeah, it's a it's an issue, but it is nice to have such a huge list of compounds for hydroenergics that we can start to dissect out are the nuclear responses? Are there beta two responses in the nucleus? Beta three responses? What are the kinetics of each each of them, and how do they how do they regulate nuclear function?
0: Amazing. Top three aha moments that you had during your um, trajectory.
1: All right. Uh, I guess one of them was in that comparative anatomy class when we first were taken through the the actions of rhodopsin to, you know, the idea that, wow, this is, this is, um, this is how the outside world influences what's going on, how, how we see how we, and it's a receptor and it's, um, so yeah, that I think I was a sophomore in college when that lecture happened and and just, yeah, really opened up my, my mind. Um, I would say I did a collaboration several years back with an electron microscopist. Uh, her name's uh, Virginia Pickle. She's at um, Weill Cornell Medical University in New York. And she's an amazing um, anatomist. One of the few uh, electron microscopists, you know, they there's just not a lot of them. And she came and gave a talk at my invitation. And I sat down with her and talked to her about OCT3. And she said, yeah, everybody tries to get me to look at their their, their target. <laughs> um, but she said, you got me interested. So send me some antibody and we'll look. And she sent me these beautiful images of OCT3 at the plasma membrane. But the first picture she showed me were holy cow, this is all over the nucleus. And I said, I know. <laughs> I don't know what the heck it's doing there, but there are these beautiful images of mitochondrial, plasma membrane, um, nuclear, OCT3. Um, and so, yeah, just all of that information that you get at that ultrastructural level. And then I think the other one was that, that image of the beta-1 immunostaining perfectly overlapping at the nucleus with... With OCT3 that answered a question that I'd had for so long of why is this monoamine transporter at the nucleus? What is it doing there? Uh, and it's, you know, now I think all bets are off. What are the other monoamine receptors that could be localized to the nucleus? Uh, those kinds of things.
0: Well, I love that you mentioned microscopy and, and the, Im- the beauty of the images. I always thought that it's an art
1: yeah, it's, it's been the source of every question that we've ever looked at. When we did the drug abuse work, it was because I knew the transporter was in the nucleus accumbens uh, and that it was distributed in particular parts of the nucleus accumbens. And that's what drove the entire grant to focus on on stress and relapse. Uh, and then the nuclear localization, again, That that's driven all of the work we've done at the now more biochemical, so biological levels. So, so we, uh, pictures tell you a lot. I mean yeah. they yeah. they they're a source of lots of questions. Yeah, there's Which really they, no it's... no way to understand the biology if you're not looking at at the structure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, there was that that saying about a picture is worth uh I think a thousand, a thousand words. words. Yeah, yeah,
1: yes. Yeah, yeah. How phenomenal is yep. that? Yeah. No, it's it's a lot of fun too and it is yeah, it is somewhat artistic i suppose.
0: yeah i think so too i i never had the chance or the opportunity to learn how to to use microscopy and how to really apply it to answer scientific questions i tried i dabbled but i always thought wow this is this is a whole <laughs> other universe and you'd have yeah. to dedicate yourself to that to learning it, but I always thought it was so beautiful. Just watching cells under the microscope, yeah, I can relate yeah. to that.
1: Yeah, and but then the combination with the kinds of biochemical assays, you yeah. know, it's so powerful. That's how we monitor kinase activity is, is on the microscope, but with tools that were generated by molecular biologists, biochemists to, to kind of monitor signaling activity in real time, visually, so. Yeah, amazing.
0: Yeah. Advice, if you had any, for junior scientists who want to contribute to the field,
1: um, I would say find questions that excite you, and and don't um, don't forget the awe. I guess the the kind of fascinating aspect of the work. Um, it can get to seeming very much. Like a job, um, it's stressful. it's it's a hard thing to do. Yeah. Um, science is tough, but it, but remember that those questions are driven by this basic kind of sense of beauty of of what we get to study, right and that, and to not assume that everything is is figured out like uh, there's there's always gonna be more that we don't understand. Um, that's a big one because that's you have to not forget why you're doing what you're doing and and it's really easy to forget that in the stress of a phd the stress of getting grants the stress you know it's yeah. i think that's probably um, the biggest piece of advice i would also say collaborate ask questions to be a part of a community i mean i think this thing that you do is a really great thing because uh, there's this idea that I know I had this as a PhD student. I have to do this myself. I'm going to get my PhD. It's all me. And I can't, you know, and when you come up against the wall, because you're going to come up against walls, uh, you either ask for help or you don't. You either discuss problems or you don't. And I don't think you progress if you don't have a community to talk to.
0: No, greed, And I think, At least in my case, when I was doing my PhD, I was, I thought that I had to do everything. You know, and you had to say, okay, this is my PhD. And I did every experiment from A to Z. I came up with the project and I did everything. And actually, that's not true. At least not in my, not in my, in, in my head at the moment. I think the idea is to ask questions that you're interested in questions Mm -hmm. that are have a larger application alert and you know give a little piece of the puzzle that we're trying to answer as to what happens in our environments and also think about the fact that the the pride or the the prize of getting a phd is being able to answer that question to the best of your ability and it's not your ability to pipette or to run X Y Z assay, and I think you made a great point around collaborating. And I think we're blessed to be in a field where the vast majority of people are open to chatting, open to collaborating, very active, very responsive as well. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, still still in love with the GPCR field for sure on our end.
1: Yeah, no, the the Great Lakes retreat. Um, what I was, I called. Alan's. I was talking to Alan Smir- Smirchka. Yes. Yeah. Um, about some of our experiments, and he said, "Do you guys go to the Great Lakes Retreat?" And I said, "No, I'd never heard of it." I mean, for this nuclear project, this has been essential, right? This, yeah. So it's, you know, it's the the meeting that I don't miss. Since then, it hasn't been that long, but it's. Um, yeah.
0: yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I cannot remember. Are you? Because uh, long story short, we've been collaborating, and I've been helping the the organizers. And I'm I'm saying the organizers, but actually, I became one of the organizers of of this year's meeting, and we're helping out from a website perspective and you know logistics perspective with the retreat. And I hope to see you there in November.
1: Yeah, we'll the, we'll be there. Yeah, I'm I'm bringing at least one trainee. Um, yeah, it's a it's such a great mo- meeting for. Yeah. yeah at every level I think. Yeah.
0: yeah. And uh, the website is gpcrretreat.org.
1: Um, I got the email a couple weeks ago about the November meeting so.
0: Yes. Yes, the uh, the invite went out and we were just laughing in the background because we had, we had sent too soon. And there were some changes (laughs) that needed to be done. And the email went out and we're like, "Uh uh-oh, we went too soon. But we saw the the response to the email was that everyone, we had such an increase in activity on the site um, that, that was just phenomenal. And it's a great meeting. I grew up as a scientist at that meeting. Um, I think in in the in the Montreal and and you know Toronto and Ottawa area that's the one meeting that in every GPCR lab no matter what you get to go once a year to that mm-hmm. meeting you still have a poster unless you were really you know starting out but that was something that we always went to and this year is going to be November second to the fourth at Chateau Montebello in Quebec and it's actually halfway between Montreal and Ottawa okay and it's. Beautiful place, thank yeah, I love looked,
1: it. I checked it out already. Um, funny thing. The first retreat I went to was right before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And at the meeting at the end of that, it was decided that Milwaukee was going to host the next one. And then we didn't have a meeting, so we were so excited to have everybody come here and then,
0: yeah, well. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but uh, all of the PIs are invited to the business meeting during yeah. the GPCR retreats. So I'm extending that invitation, uh, <laughs> and maybe maybe you guys can organize. Yeah. And we're always happy to help the next uh, the next time. Yeah, I I'm tr- I'm trying to figure out when where was the 2019 meeting and if I was there. But I think I, I was. I think you
1: were. Yes, I think you were because I think there have only been. Has there only been one since the pandemic?
0: Yes, 2022, oh, last year yeah, in May. I, yeah. Yeah.
1: And I rec I remembered you at this meeting from the previous meeting. So okay. I think you were there. I can't remember where it was.
0: I think it was in Quebec. I think it was at um uh, at Bromont, Chateau Bromont. Yeah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. That
1: was yeah. beautiful as well.
0: Yes. It's always beautiful since this meeting is typically in the fall. And then mm-hmm. it's and it's interesting to see the differences in in and in, in nature and the colors of the leaves depending on where you are i think quebec is a little bit more advanced color wise and then you come down to to vermont and then go come to new hampshire in the boston area and then you can see the the changes or and and, and colors uh, in the leaves so i think you it was a great it's always a great meeting
1: yeah, yeah no we plan to be there for sure
0: amazing so i'll see you there in person paul thank you yes. so much for your time
1: thank you this was great that's
0: fun. Absolutely. Don't go anywhere. We're going to let people wonder what we're talking about after we <laughs> we stop recording. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. Thanks. Thank you for joining us for this, for this Dr. GPCR podcast episode. We would like to take a moment and thank our guests, as well as our Dr. GPCR team members, Attila, Ines, Monserrat, Ivana, Andreina, Balint, and Julia. A huge thank you to our ecosystem partners for their support. Domain Therapeutics, GPCR Therapeutics, Design Pharmaceuticals, Montana Molecular, and Orion Biotechnology. You can connect with our partners directly in the ecosystem. Join us today. Please also don't forget to subscribe to the Dr. GPCR monthly newsletter. Find us on YouTube. And if you like our podcast, leave us a five star review on Apple Podcast. You can also leave us a testimonial on our website. Another way to support us is to share your favorite Dr. GPCR program with your network and colleagues. You can always email us with any questions or suggestions at hello at And until next time, stay safe.